Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going over the second part of chapter 11. The first part was about the Mormon concept of deification, and we talked about what that entails and the unique view of my dad on that. And now we're going to go over what's titled Arguments That Essential Divine Properties Cannot Be Shared With Humans. And so a couple episodes ago, we did this kind of from a more generic, zoomed out point of view of different Christian traditions, but this time we're going to be doing it from a specifically arguments against the Mormon point of view and more specifically against my dad's version of that. So, just to give a summary of what we're going to do real quick, I guess, you have a quote here. It says, I suspect that the most powerful resistance to the doctrine of robust deification, again, that's the definition we came up with last episode, arises not from the scriptural argument, but from the metaphysical assumptions that are brought to the biblical texts which control how they are read. These assumptions are based on a complex of beliefs which entail that there can be at most one divine being. These assumptions arise from the scriptural language and statements that have been taken to implicitly entail metaphysical monotheism. So we've dropped this word a lot the last few episodes, and I guess if somehow you got left behind there, metaphysical monotheism is just the view that comes from, if you believe in creation ex nihilo, that means God is solely an uncreated being and nothing else existed of necessity, and he brought it into being out of nothing, basically, and he maintains it in existence because its nature is not to exist. Therefore, humans can't be anything like this God in general, and that's kind of most of the arguments against the Mormon point of view. Uh, what we're going to do in this podcast is go over three arguments from William Wainwright, and here is a brief overview of them. So the first argument concludes that there cannot be more than one all-powerful person, and that any being who can count as a divine person must be all-powerful. The second argument assumes that God is the sole causally necessary and sufficient condition of all else that exists, and argues that if God causes everything else to or everything else that exists, then there can be at most one such God. Thus, divine sovereignty cannot be shared with humans. The third argument assumes that necessarily. God is that being which can demand total devotion, and that any such being must be more perfect than any other being. It concludes that there can only be one such being. So those are the arguments we're going to go over. Uh, but before we dive into that, Dad, I guess just introduce us to, uh, it feels like we addressed most of these already, but why are we going at it again, or, or what can we get out of it from a distinctly Mormon point of view? The purpose in going over the arguments is twofold. These are arguments essentially that are given against the view of the social trinity. That is, there are distinct centers of consciousness and free will that constitute each of the three divine persons, and that these three divine persons constitute a social trinity. But the same arguments against the social trinity are valid, would also count against the view that more than one being could be um, God, or more than one being, could be truly divine in, a, in the fullest sense of divine, which is the way we use it in Mormonism in the sense of robust theism. 
And so looking at these arguments is instructive for two reasons. One is that I think what they show, if when we get right down to it, the second argument having to do with sovereignty shows that the idea of the social trinity is not viable if one also accepts the view of creation ex nihilo. And the third argument is very instructive about what we mean about God, but more importantly, what we mean by worship and devotion and the kind of ultimate demand that is made upon us by God. What could make an ultimate moral demand upon us in the way that God does, for instance, in the Old and New Testaments? And what would be our ultimate concern, to use Paul Tillich's term? An ultimate concern is something that, uh, above all else, demands our attention, demands our devotion, and demands our allegiance. And there would have to be something that is worthy of that and that has the status to make that kind of a demand. And only God will fit that kind of a requirement. And the argument is that there can at most be one such being that could um, require ultimate allegiance because divided allegiances would be inimical to the very idea of such devotion. All right, so the first argument you start out by asking, or you form it as a question, you say, can a fullness of divine power be shared? So to start out, you say, it would be possible to impugn deification in the Mormon tradition, which just means to say it doesn't work, I guess, if it could be shown that there is any attribute that is essential for sharing the divine nature and arguing that the attribute in question is necessarily unshareable. So we would be making the kind of argument the Protestants make, and that is that we can participate in divine nature to some limited extent. For instance, God is, is good in a divine sense. We can be good in a human sense, so we can share something about what God is. But the kind of divine properties that God possesses can't be possessed by human beings. And this is an argument to suggest that there's at least one essential element of deity which couldn't be shared with human beings because at most there could be one omnipotent being. So like you said, omnipotence is the one he focuses on. So as we talked about in the episode, the arguments against social Trinitarianism, the same problem comes up again, which is the problem of competing omnipotence. And we dealt with it also, I would point out, in the very first volume when we were dealing with the notion of omnipotence and we were hammering out what would constitute a coherent view of divine power. So I've dealt with it in the first volume, and now we're dealing with it again in this volume based upon the kind of work and ground that we plowed already in the first volume, defining what would be a coherent idea of divine power. All right, and so just a brief overview of the argument again is just that if some being is omnipotent, meaning has all the power, or has all power and can do anything logically possible, then if another being existed that had that same capability, then at some point they would be able, you know, they would have conflicting, or they could potentially have conflicting wills, and at that point, what happens? Because they both should have all power, and if both of them are unable to effectuate their will because it can be thwarted by the other, then they're not omnipotent anymore. And then you say of that argument, if it is true, then divine power cannot be shared because at most one being could possess divine power. However, if omnipotence is rendered coherently by defining it as maximal power, that's the definition we came up with in the first volume for kind of what a Mormon view of omnipotence would be, then maximal power is shareable. Real briefly, if you could uh, define maximal power again, if you would. So maximal power is the kind of power that is coherent. It's not really a Mormon idea of divine power. It's the only kind of 
idea of divine power that could be adopted because other views of divine power are incoherent. So, for instance, the usual definition is that God can do anything logically possible. However, it's logically possible that I freely choose to go to the movies on Sunday, but God couldn't make that choice for me. Or he couldn't require me to make that choice or force me to make that choice by his power because then it wouldn't be free. So I have the ability to do a logically possible act, freely choose to go to the movies, and it's an act that God can't do. God can't make that choice for me. He can't make my choice, even though it's logically possible that I make the choice. Further, we concluded that God can't change the past. That is, Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address in uh, 1863, and it's now necessary that Gettysburg Address was in fact delivered in 1863, and God can't change that fact. In addition, God's power has to be limited in ways that would render it possible with what's occurred in the past. So we came up with an idea of divine power, defining maximal power that would eliminate these kinds of problems and contradictions in divine power, and then tested it against certain test cases to determine its powerful explanatory ability as a definition and whether it was coherent. Okay, thank you. And then also you say the question whether more than one divine being could possess divine power is answered by suggesting that the divine power emerges from the relationship of unity among the divine persons, and we talked about that kind of uh, in the last chapter, and you know, off and on throughout this entire book. What we argued is that divine power is necessarily shared. I mean, the very notion of divine persons disagreeing in a way that exercises divine power against one another is impossible, because the very idea of divine power is that their power arises from the very unity that they share. And so if they disagreed, they would cease to have the unity. They would therefore cease to have the power. Therefore, it's impossible that omnipotent wills actually conflict in this sense because the divine power would simply disappear or dissipate, evaporate, and not exist if they disagreed. Okay, great. And then moving on here, you say there's another form of the argument. You say it's the subsidiary argument, and it's as follows. So we say, necessarily, if the will of an omnipotent person conflicts with another person's will, the latter's will is thwarted by the former's will. This is between gods and humans here, I guess. So, and then necessarily, if a person's will is thwarted by another's will, then that person is not omnipotent. Therefore, if there are two omnipotent persons and their wills conflicted, then neither would be omnipotent since their wills could be thwarted. So, I guess this is a problem we would have to deal with in this emergent power, just because unless only one person is actually able to will something, then I, I guess it's just saying that you're not omnipotent because if someone disagrees, like let's say God was like, you know what, I think I want to blow up the earth because it's just not working out. And then Jesus is like, no, we shouldn't blow up the earth. Now they disagreed, and now neither of them has the power to blow up the earth or to not blow up the earth, it seems. So how do we resolve that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the argument is, well, you've just proven my point. They can't be omnipotent if they disagree with each other or they have conflicting wills. Therefore, they're not omnipotent beings. The kind of problem that we have is the idea of thwarting will. So we actually thwart God's will all the time, I would suspect, and that is God would, as a general matter, have us all choose to be saved if we freely choose it. Now, the latter, if we freely choose it, makes his will for us, our will for us, and our will for us, his will for us. 
And so his will is not going to conflict with ours because he's decided to subordinate his will in essence to our will. And so whatever we choose, we receive. The irony is, is that it's either our will be done ultimately or God's will be done ultimately. So we can have it our way or ultimately we can say to God, thy will be done. And so if there were an evil being who could thwart our will, then this would be a huge problem because let's say that God were an evil being and he wanted to thwart our wills, he would be rendered powerless by the mere fact that we disagree with him. But the fact is that the divine persons are the ultimate in value. The kind of love that they share, the kind of relationship that they share is the ultimate good that we could possibly achieve. And so if we disagree with his will, we're simply disagreeing against our own best interests of necessity. And so it's stupid and foolish to disagree with God. It's nevertheless the case that given the definition of maximal power, a person who is maximally power can ha have a will that is thwarted. Divine will can be thwarted because we exercise our free will. And so a general desire that we all be saved is thwarted by the fact that we choose not to be saved, even though his ultimate will is that he's going to recognize and, and honor our wills. So if we parse God's will in this way, what we discover is that ultimately God is always saying, well, I'm always going to recognize the free will of another. And that's the way it must be in a loving relationship, because loving relationships are, are freely chosen. So it has to be the case that the other person in the relationship is always left free to choose out of the relationship. And so there's always that possibility, at least logically, that a person would choose not to be in this relationship because it's within their power to freely make that choice. This is not a problem. It's ultimately the way that love works and must work because by the very nature of love, it has to be a free choice. And so that God's will is thwarted in this way is not a problem for divine omnipotence because what he's being limited by here is simply the nature of divine love. Okay. And so I guess to clarify, then you're saying that because necessarily another being that can thwart this maximally powerful being he's maximally powerful because you can only have the amount of power possible given the limitations such as another person's free will so you're saying another person can have free will and not agree with that divine person and yet this maximal power is maintained but i guess it's a very big distinction that you're making between maximal power as opposed to the classical notion of omnipotence Right. In, uh, in the classical notion of omnipotence, God overrides our will, and, and yet some, like Calvin, would say we remain free anyway. Um, I've looked at that argument and found that it just doesn't hold water. But the bottom line is that given maximal power, maximal power is such that logically, uh, in order for persons to be free, the divine will has to be able to be thwartable, if you will, by free choices in, in the initial sense that I suggested. And so it's just a fact that given maximal power, a divine person's power, in fact, can be thwarted. The, the will of a divine person isn't always recognized or, or realized. In Calvinism, God's will is always done. Anything that God desires is, in fact, what is done. It's why his secret will is that it's done, not the will that he apparently has. There's that distinction that we went over when we were looking at volume two. 
the, the bottom line with all of this is that a divine being need not be able to bring about the free choices of other beings, and therefore there are logically possible states of affairs that a divine person can't bring about. And if that divine person makes the decision to honor free choices, then the divine will must be thwarted by another will. And in fact, that means that the divine will becomes, I'm going to honor free choices. But there's a sense among the divine persons where it couldn't be otherwise. For the divine persons in the relationship, they have to leave each other free to choose because otherwise they wouldn't love each other with the highest kind of love that honors the choices of the beloved. And so of necessity, the divine persons must leave each other free to totally thwart each other's wills. The fact is that they won't do it because it would be stupid to do it. And they're, you know, they have divine knowledge as well. And they're not stupid in that sense. So they will always be able to work things out in a way that they recognize and honor each other's free will. But logically, it's possible that they do so. That's how the argument falls out. Okay. So I guess, I mean, the biggest distinction is that in your view, this maximal power is not something inherent or essential to the properties of God. It's emergent, again, from the relationship, but it's not something that is essential to these beings' existence, or like the kind of being divine. Again, you're saying they only emerge with this power if they're in that relationship, and they are in that relationship, so they have the power. Yeah, and I'm making a stronger claim than that. I'm making two claims. One is that any coherent idea of power would have to make these same concessions to the free will of another, given the nature of love. And the very powerful claim, and this is a, a very broad claim, that the nature of divine love requires that this kind of a concession be made to the free will of others. The most powerful being is actually one that honors the choices of others. The only person who would actually be threatened by the choices of others is a being that isn't maximally powerful. And the reason for that is that that, that kind of being couldn't still realize its purposes for the universe. It couldn't compensate. All right, with that, we'll move on to the next question, and Jacob will take the lead on that. All right, and that is, can divine sovereignty be shared by humans? And sovereignty is someone that's in a self-governing state. So, in other words, can we be uh, like self-governing or self-sustaining? Well, it's not about self-governance. It's about governance of all of reality. Because it's divine. Okay. It has to do with creation. I mean, it has to do with God's ability to control everything that occurs. Okay. So, and um, you say that the argument is roughly that if the Godhead can accomplish its will without me, then anything I could do to accomplish the same thing would be totally superfluous. For example, for the class of acts that God can accomplish without my cooperation, if I pray that God's will might be done, my prayer does nothing. God can accomplish whatever I pray for without me. If I then align my will with God's, my will adds nothing to accomplish what God can already bring about without me. So it does bring an interesting view to prayer, which we discussed quite a bit in the... In the, the second volume is the second chapter of the second volume where we discuss the nature of prayer. And this, again, is related to the issue of, well, where are we praying because God can do everything he wants to without me? Why would I need to pray or ask him to do anything at all and since he's already committed to doing what's best? If I ask him to do something that's different than what he's already committed to do, I would have to be stupid to do that because I'm asking him to do something other than the best. And so we work through those problems in the problem of prayer, and they come into play also here a bit. 
you go on to say that the concept of deification entails that I share the divine power with the Most High God. Now, does it also entail that a deified human being share divine sovereignty with the Most High God? Divine sovereignty can be defined as follows. Any being that accomplishes whatever it wills within the scope of maximal power is sovereign. In layman's terms, what are you saying there? Well, what we're saying is, take the case, we've defined a coherent idea of divine power called maximal power. Any being that can accomplish whatever is possible with maximal power is therefore sovereign. That is, God can do everything that is coherently, unilaterally doable. One of the key aspects of maximal power is that it is something that can be done unilaterally. It's the kind of things that God can do without requiring assistance from someone else. So that's what's directly within God's power. If he relies upon something or somebody else to bring it about, then that's not directly within God's power or sovereignty because he relies upon another medium in order to accomplish his purposes, and that medium would have to be less reliable than God is. And so maximal power is defined in terms of what is unilaterally possible for God to bring about. It's an important point. So sovereignty is defined in terms of what God can bring about directly himself. Also has to do with the scope of his governance. You know, does God control everything that occurs? So, for instance, when it comes to salvation, is God the only actor to determine whether I'm saved or not? Do I have a role in that? In terms of creation, does God rely on on material that's already there? Can he, or does he just act without any prior conditions? It's, so, sovereignty has to do with what God can do without relying on something else. So, then the answer to the question: Can divine sovereignty be shared by humans? Is well, there's a very interesting argument here, and that is that William Wainwright's argument would suggest that sovereignty can't be shared. And the reason that sovereignty can't be shared, again, is that it's what unilaterally God is able to bring about. And it has solely to do with what God himself can do. It follows that there can be a most one being that has divine sovereignty. It also has to do, therefore, in the tradition, God can bring about virtually anything because Wainwright defines this in terms of God's ability to be the causally sufficient cause for everything that exists. And so if God creates ex nihilo, then it follows that virtually everything that exists is within God's power because he can simply snuff it out of existence any time that he ceases to will its existence. What it means is, is that in order for God to be sovereign in this sense, he has to be the sole and the sufficient cause for all states of affairs that occur. In a sense, it adopts both creation ex nihilo and what I argued is entailed in creation ex nihilo, and that's occasionalism, that every single event that occurs is brought about directly by God because God creates it in existence in exactly the way that it exists in, in each new moment that it exists. And so the state of the universe at any given moment is a direct result of God's creative power to create it to be exactly that way. And so when we define divine sovereignty in this way, obviously, it assumes creation ex nihilo. And the question is, you know, does God have to be able to create ex nihilo to be God? And I've already argued at length that he doesn't have to be. But something emerges from my argument, I think, that is of overriding importance. I look at arguments both by Timothy Bartell and by Wainwright. To the effect that if God is able to create ex nihilo, then he must have this power. And what it means is, is that God's will has to be the sole sufficient cause of states of affairs that exist. And if it requires the cooperation of any other being, 
then that being's input or co additional causal power would be totally superfluous to whatever God desires to bring about. It's a very detailed argument, but I'll just give the conclusion. What I've argued is that it entails that a person who adopts a social trinity cannot also coherently adopt creation ex nihilo for the reason that if you had more than one divine being um, with a distinct will and free will in that context, then that being would not be sovereign in that sense. It follows that if we have distinct centers of consciousness who are supposed to be in and of themselves the sole sufficient cause of the universe, it follows that there can be only one such. There can't be three, as social Trinitarians would argue. Nor could there be thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions, as Mormons posit, when human beings become divine. So what we're looking at is a very powerful argument that we have to reject creation ex nihilo, or if we're going to accept anything like the social trinity, and certainly if we're going to accept anything like robust deification. If I'm understanding that correctly, William Wainwright was saying, yes, but that entails creation ex ex nihilo as well as certain beliefs within the, the tradition and the trinity. However, in your view, without creation ex nihilo, is there a way for this divine sovereignty to be shared by humans? Divine sovereignty can be shared if divine sovereignty means that God has maximal power and we reject the notion that God has to be the sole sufficient cause of everything that exists in each moment. So if we reject that assumption, then sovereignty can be shared in exactly the way that we've already defined it when we were discussing the Godhead, and that is that our divine power emerges from our loving relationship, and we share in the divine power fully because we cooperate with each other to bring about any states of affairs that exist. There is an unsettling argument in this neighborhood that I'm not sure it's still a bit unsettling to me, and I haven't fully resolved it, and that is the problem of, you know, that we brought up in the problem of prayer. God can accomplish his purposes. Say that God wants to make it so that, you know, everybody in America is aware of his existence. He could do that, and he doesn't need me to make it possible for him to do that. And if I pray for that to occur, and it then occurs, either God desired it or he didn't, if we get back to the problem of prayer, we can say there may be certain circumstances under which God wouldn't do that unless somebody asked for it to happen. And then God can appear to those who ask for God to be made known to them. And so at least to those people, God can make himself known because it, that would then depend upon their will. But if God simply decides, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give infallible proofs that I'm God to everyone in the world. God could unilaterally bring that about, and he doesn't mean my cooperation, doesn't need anything that I do or to add so that he could bring that about. However, all the persons who were divine persons, and this is kind of the denouement, this view of divine sovereignty in, in relation to the idea of divine union of the divine persons. If there's just one divine person who disagrees, what happens is that divine person falls out of the fullness of divinity and out of the Godhead. And therefore, they lose the ability to thwart whatever happens because they then don't have divine power. And so it turns out it's either you agree with God or you're not a divine person. It's just the way that it is. It therefore seems that in the divine unity, there's only one will that counts, and that's the Father's because everybody has to agree with him or they're not divine at all. 
Now, we would be foolish not to agree with God, and let me put it in these terms. As I said, the loving unity of the divine persons represents the apex of possible value and human meaning, potentially, for anybody in the universe. And so, the greatest thing we know is this divine union of love, the kind of relationship and interpersonal fulfillment that one would find in this relationship. And all of the moral obligations, I've argued in Volume 2, arise from the nature of this loving relationship. And so everything that really matters is tied up in being in this relationship. If one were to decide, I'm not going to do the Father's will, what they're doing is deciding against their own best interest, and they're choosing foolishly against the best interest of everything in the universe. And what it means is that if one isn't going to agree with the Father, then one can choose that for oneself, but it doesn't detract from the other divine persons who see with complete clarity that you'd have to be stupid to make that choice. Now, humans make that choice all of the time. We reject God, we shut him out from our consciousness, we reject his existence, and so forth. And we refuse to follow the commandments. Every time we do that, we're choosing against the greatest good, we're choosing against the greatest love, and we're thwarting our own ability to be a part of the divine sovereignty and the divine power. And do we add anything to the divine power? The answer is yes, in the same sense that we addressed in Volume 2 when we were talking about the way the prayer works. So we have the same extent to add our power and to make a difference in the divine will in the same way that we would do if we pray now. Then this is a great power. And I don't want to redo all of the arguments that we did when we were discussing the power of prayer and the problem of prayer when we were discussing this second chapter in the second volume. In fact, we spent two different podcasts on that, so I'm just going to refer the listeners back to that. All right, sounds good. Um, with that, we can go ahead and move on to the third question, which uh, we'll go back to Corey. All right, so the third question is, are deified humans worthy of divine worship? And so this is probably where some traditional Mormon views might rub up against your particular view of an emergent divinity. But, I mean, you make some good arguments of why this is a preferable view. But anyway, you'd first say, Wainwright argues that any being who can be considered fully divine must be understood as uniquely worthy of worship. So, this is with the understanding of, again, uh, metaphysical monotheism, meaning if you're fully divine, you have all the power, and therefore, since you're the author of all existence, basically, then you are, by default, worthy of worship, because nothing would exist without you. Whereas, I guess in a Mormon point of view, since there are pre-existing intelligences that are co-eternal with God, as well as the elements themselves, which though organized by God in a particular manner, and they wouldn't be without his willing it, I suppose. I mean, I guess technically they could if that's their nature. We didn't haven't really talked about that yet. But anyway, as far as your view goes, they aren't chaos because God organizes them. So we have a different set of what being fully divine is that we've talked about at length. But you take a different take on worship worthiness, and you say in this quote here, you say, I suggest that worship worthiness itself derives from something more fundamental than the mere requirement that the being who issues the commands is the most powerful and knowledgeable being possible. Might does not make right, and we ought never to worship sheer power. Rather, God's worthiness to be worshipped, and the authority 
to issue commands arises from the supreme love and sheer giving grace that characterize the divine persons in the Godhead. So you've talked about that at length before as well, how we are indebted to him, I guess, since he's the one that offered the relationship and he's the one that gave all the opportunities and therefore the worship worthiness is more of a, a gratitude, I guess. Think of it in these terms. Think of the person in your life that has treated you with the greatest love and actually gave you life itself, you know, changed your diapers, clothed you, fed you, and they loved you with everything that they were, and you felt the love. So the question is, how would you respond to that person if they ask you, would you be willing to do this for me? And it seems to me that no matter what it is, you would look at that person, and you wouldn't do it out of duty. You wouldn't do it because it's a burden and you feel like you have to. You wouldn't do it because it's just the right thing to do. You would do it out of sheer love and gratitude for all that's been done. Now, obviously, I've just defined everybody's um, father and mother, probably more mother than father. But the bottom line is, is that the greatest thing that we know, you know, is a human personality in a fully loving relationship and fulfilled in interpersonal giving and receiving in such relationships. We just don't know anything of greater value or higher. And when it comes to worship worthiness, we worship God because of the sheer sense of overwhelming love and gratitude for everything that we not only we've been given, for everything that God is. I mean, we're talking about the most powerful and knowledgeable being that actually exists in the universe that could possibly exist in any universe, as a matter of fact. And so what we're talking about is this being who, who could exercise whatever power they have in a way that doesn't recognize this love, but then the power of love would be lost. And so what we're really talking about, what do we worship? What we worship is the, the sheer beauty and magnificence and magnitude of divine loving relationships into which we've been invited. And so worship worthiness isn't something that is a, a have to or an obligation imposed upon us. It's a sheer opportunity for us to express our love in return and our gratitude in return for everything that has been given to us freely as a matter of grace. I just don't know anything that would be worth more devoting a life to, committing a life to, and simply saying, you know, to be in this kind of loving relationship, I trust you so completely that not only if you ask me to do something do I trust it to be for my best good, but it now becomes something that is incumbent on me. Not incumbent in the sense that there's this huge burden laid upon me to guilt me into doing it. That's not how that works. But out of the sheer nature of the relationship, I'm called out of my own being to do it this way, to recognize this being as the source of everything that matters most to me, that matters most to the people that I love in my family. This is the being who makes it possible for those that I care about most in this life to be with me in eternity, to be with me forever, and to secure the kinds of relationships without which the universe would be deprived of a magnitude of love so great that it would be an overwhelming loss. And so when we're talking about worship, in the tradition, and I don't want to paint everybody this way. I mean, when I was reading Augustine, I got this sense of sheer love and gratitude. And it's not like people in, the, in other traditions don't share this. They do, and I, I think we can learn a lot from them. 
but it, it's more in reading Joseph Smith and the kind of love that he had for other people that was so deep. He couldn't stand the thought that the bonds of their sociality would be broken or, or different. And just the sheer delight and pleasure in serving God and in doing whatever God asks. And so worship comes when we're driven to our knees out of this kind of love and gratitude because there's just no other expression that could really express who and what we are in relation to God than really falling to our knees and wetting his feet with our tears because of, of our recognition of our relationship to him. Right, and then to further that, you say, referring to the Godhead, their authority is the authority of love, and the fact that they ought to be worshipped arises from the gratitude that is proper towards beings who have given us all that we have and who therefore stand in relation to us as supreme benefactors. And again, we talked about the benefactor and the honor and shame culture relationship a lot in the second volume, meaning, you know, if someone adopts you and gives you stuff, then obviously you should have gratitude towards them. So I guess that's kind of my question. Yeah, and I I want to focus on the should here, because it's not really a should. That's a moral obligation. And the sense of gratitude we have doesn't arise out of obligation. It arises out of the sheer opportunity to fully express what matters most to us and who we are. In other words, rather than feeling it as a weight and something that we have to do, this is an opportunity and something that we get to do because it's the greatest expression of everything that that we care about. And so the gratitude that we're expressing doesn't arise out of this kind of obligation. We're moving beyond the moral sphere. When Christ talks about the Sermon on the Mount, he's going way beyond moral obligation. He's talking about the kind of response that is given by people who are loving. That's why he talks about what the law requires. So if you're sued a law and you're required to give a coat, that would be an appropriate judgment. You don't just give one coat. You give the coat off your own back. And it's like you would do with your own child. I mean, if your child is freezing, not only do you buy a coat for your child, if your child's still freezing, you take the coat off your own body and you wrap your child in it and you'll be fine. There's enough warmth to go around. If your son or daughter asks you for directions, you don't just point them and say, well, go down the street and turn left. You go show them. You walk the whole distance with them. You go the extra mile. And so the kind of radical ethic that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount By say radical ethic, I mean something that goes way beyond the usual norm of ethics. Agape ethics is something very different than the duty-based ethics that we usually talk about. And so worship operates in a different sphere. It operates in the I-thou sphere of relationship. It operates in the kind of regard that arises out of allowing another to reveal him or herself to us rather than imposing ourselves and what we seek from them onto them. And so when I hear people talk about worship, it's, it's actually, well, I'm going to show God that I'm, I'm appropriately responding. No, that's not what it's about at all. Take a mentor in your life who's taught you so much and given you so much out of sheer love. The response isn't, well, I'm going to show him I've got an appropriate response to show him that, you know, I understand all that he's done for me. That's not how we do it. We do it out of sheer love and the opportunity. Man, I'm so glad that I get the opportunity to show this person how much I care. And so I I just want to distinguish the spheres of discourse that we're talking about to move this out of an I-it or an it-it type of sphere of moral discourse to an I-thou sphere of discourse. Right, and I think you make a good distinction here that maybe isn't 
quite recognize the same way in the tradition or even I'd say in Mormonism in general. But what you're saying is that as opposed to like, again, the like a metaphysical monotheism God where because he literally is the author of everything, he by nature kind of demands this, not like he demands it, but like the nature of his being demands that we obey and worship him. There's a difference here between a all-powerful being that is, is saying, I deserve to be worshipped, therefore worship me. So I guess there's a difference between this very important word that you use, worship worthiness, meaning it is worthy of being worshipped, as opposed to demanding of being worshipped. So, you know, I, I don't know, I just see a big difference here. Like, this being is worthy of you worshipping it because of the love. It doesn't mean that you have to, though. It's just worthy if you chose to give that kind of, I guess the word you use is obeisance to this being, then it is appropriate to do so. But you sure don't have to. But I guess that different Christians, they see that actually more as a problem because they're saying, well, your God's not strong enough or your God's not powerful enough. He's not all these things that my God is, and therefore I don't have to worship him, and I don't know if that's good enough, it, like, I, like I was getting at before. So my mom gave me a thing, and I, I do believe that probably all that my mother is suggesting to me is, in her mind, in my best interest, and I believe that she has that at heart with me all the time, but I don't worship her because I believe her knowledge is limited and her power is limited, and so, yeah, I mean, they're good suggestions, but it's only her limited mind that's saying, and so I appreciate it and I'll take it, but ultimately, it's going to be up to me because I don't see her as having this ultimate knowledge and this ultimate power. And I think only a being that has that ultimate knowledge and ultimate power would therefore be something like, oh, since it has my best interest, I know that it has my best interest because it has this grand picture. And so do you see a problem with, you know, or I guess, do you need to bring back in some of the power and knowledge or omnipotence of God that also adds to the worship worthiness? Why don't I worship my mother, I guess, is what I'm asking. You don't worship your mother because she's not the one who literally gave you everything that you have. I mean, she gave you life, but, you know, she didn't make the world. More importantly, your mom's not always right. I mean, if your mother were omniscient and really understood what was always best for you, it might be different. But that's it. You and I both know, as wonderful as your mother is, sometimes she doesn't always see things exactly the way they are. And that's true of all of us, right? <laughs> Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm, yeah, I'm saying, I'm just saying mother in, in generic terms of everybody. Just, that's what I'm saying. It, it seems like you're agreeing with me that the power and omniscience. But you talk about obeisance. Obeisance has connotations that are not appropriate. And here's where the kingship metaphor may not be as helpful as in other areas. And that is, a king is somebody who can have you punished, right? A king is somebody who, if you don't follow his laws, is going to punish you for breaking the law. Whereas God is simply going to teach you the consequences and, you know, what naturally follows from you are not following the law. Depending on your point of view of God, I guess a lot of Christians do believe that God will punish you, and I think a lot of Mormons believe that too. I'm not saying they're right, I'm just saying that's very commonly believed. Well, he doesn't punish us. We simply don't have the benefit of the level of light that otherwise we would have if we reject the level of light that's offered to us. We have whatever level of light to give life to our bodies to the extent we're willing to receive it, and to the extent we're not, we don't have that benefit. And so it's not really punishing us. He doesn't need to punish us. 
it follows as a, as a natural matter of course that if we choose against the light, we won't enjoy that level of light. It's not a matter of punishment. It's like if I have a child, I may punish the child, but not out of addictiveness or you know wanting retribution. I punish the child so that the child can learn to avoid certain mistakes that in the end would destroy the happiness of that child. So to the extent God punishes us, it's not really a punishment. It's more of a teaching tool for teaching us to have the greatest happiness possible. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's part of the genius of God's plan, as well as just saying Joseph Smith's thought and how it's been articulated, that, you know, there's universalism, and a lot of people say, like, oh, Joseph Smith's just a universalist, which, and that means that everyone is going to be saved. But he came up with something more thoughtful, I think, that everyone that wants to be saved will be saved, and everyone, like you said, is going to get that level of glory that they so choose to have, that they're ready for, that they develop to that level. And I think that's, I don't know, I just really enjoy that insight where forced salvation is still not exactly a really good thing, but it's, I invite you to come to whatever level of being that you want. I invite you all the way to the top. I really wish you could be here with me, but wherever you want to be, I honor that. And that's beautiful. Yeah. And forced salvation is kind of like forced happiness. I mean, okay. (laughs) <laughs> I guess I'd rather be happy, and if you've got to force me, fine, but you can't really force my happiness. Exactly. It's just the way that it is. It's not merely an oxymoron. It's logically impossible to force happiness. Moving on to the, the actual question of the section, then, about humans being worthy of worship. You say, could deified humans be worthy of worship in this same sense? And then you say, humans can never be worthy of worship apart from unity with the Godhead. But then you point out, but neither could the Father or the Son. However, humans can participate in the divine nature of the one God that is worshipped. We can be worthy of worship to the extent that we are one with the Father and the Son as givers and receivers of love to others with whom we seek to share this self-same divine love. Yeah, put it in these terms. We call ourselves sometimes Savior's Son, Mount Zion, right? So, to the extent that we express our love in doing work for the dead, you know, we even use the term Saviors for ourselves because we participate in the salvific work that is offered to those who have passed on. I'll just say as a sidelight that work for the dead is a particularly laudable form of expressing love what Kierkegaard called works of love. And he even points out that work for the dead would be the perfect form of love because otherwise when we do work for somebody, we create an obligation for them to give back to us. But if we do this work for somebody who's already dead, we can't expect any return and we would do it out of sheer love, not out of a motive to somehow help ourselves out. When we recognize that human beings are, we're one in the Godhead, we too share in the same divine love that is so worthy of commitment of everything that we are. To the extent that we express that kind of love for others, and to the extent that we share in the perfect knowledge, perfect power, and perfect commitment to the best interests of all others, then to that same extent, we would be worthy of worship. But given the way that things just actually are, and all that has been done for us by the Father, Just like the Son did, we would then turn and give all glory to the Father. And this is how it's set up in Philippians. Any glory given to the Son redounds to the glory of the Father. Any worship or any glory that would be given to us, we would and properly 
turn and say, nevertheless, all glory be to the Father, to the Son, and the Holy Ghost, because without them, I'm nothing. And literally, that then becomes true, because we can't have that kind of deification or be worthy of worship in any sense. So, ultimately, would we be worthy of worship? Yes, to the extent that we are loving participants in the Godhead, we would be worthy of worship. But we would always then point beyond ourselves to the divine persons as the appropriate recipients of that worship and gratefulness. Okay, and then one last question here, and then, Jacob, if you have any, you can jump in after this. In the book, you say, while from our own perspective, we will never be separately worthy of worship, like we talked about, from the perspective of those who see only Christ in our countenances, we may become worthy of worship that is passed through the Lamb of God. Just as Moses was God to Pharaoh in Exodus and Aaron, here's the part I have a question about. You say, we may be regarded as gods to those who look to us for their salvation. So I wanted to clarify there because in traditional Mormon thought, uh, more what you'd call the Brigham Young strain is that what are these beings that look to us for their salvation? Because in traditional thought, that means the beings that we will beget on other worlds, our own spirit children, if you will, and if not, you know, some sort of spirit children, what do you have in mind here? Because I know in your view that is not a thing. Yeah, definitively not. I, I don't believe that we fly up to some part of the universe that God didn't quite get around yet to to populate it with our spirit children or with our physical children, and, you know, thereafter. What I'm referring to is, take, let me give an example. Missionaries go and begin to teach the gospel to people, and if they trust the missionaries to deliver the truth to them, they begin to look to them as the source of truth and light. They become messengers of God. And so they treat that person the way that God was saying to Pharaoh and to Aaron to treat Moses. He is his representative on earth, and so you've got to listen to him. And if you don't listen to him, you're rejecting God. In that sense, people may look to us and treat us as if though we're God because they see God in us or they see Christ's countenance in our image. And so the bottom line is that what we're doing always is representing the Father through the Son to others. And we never set ourselves up to be the recipient of worship. We never set ourselves up to be the recipients of praise and to be the ultimate source of truth, light, and knowledge. We set ourselves up, nevertheless, as trustworthy to deliver those things to others. And if we are, in fact, trustworthy, then they can properly recognize us as the people recognized Moses and, you know, whom in the Bible was called a God for that reason. Now, the fact is, is that to the extent that we participate as one in the Godhead, it's like when divine messengers appear in the Old Testament, okay? This happens all the time. In fact, it happens also in Revelation. You get divine messengers that appear, and as far as the recipient of the vision is concerned, the being that's appearing is God. In fact, he speaks in the first person as God. Then it turns out they're only an angel or a messenger, and they're just saying, don't worship me, I'm just a messenger. And so when we look to them to stand in God's place, our natural response is to worship them. But they will always then turn and say, look, don't worship me. Worship is appropriate for the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. I'm merely a messenger. I merely stand in their place. I'm merely the one delivering a message. And so that's, I think, the best model for looking at the nature of this relationship. Okay. I lied. I have two more questions. So from what you just said, it, the first question, I guess, is it sounds like your definition of gods is very similar to what most Mormons would understand as divine messengers. 
or merely angels or resurrected beings. And then before you answer that, also second, related to that is, I was just thinking, so I know in your view, like, they wouldn't do this because it's logically stupid or something, but I guess logically now, because divinity is an emergent property between the divine kind of beings that we and God are, if, and I guess you'd have to because this has happened before, but let's say in some distant eon where there's tons of people accepted into this divine relationship and they're all as one and they all have the same will, I guess. What then if logically God the Father could decide to leave this relationship? Would the divinity of everyone else fall? I would say, based on your view, it can't because God is not unique as a being because we're supposed to be the same kind as being as him. So it could exist without God being in here at all. And therefore whose will at that point would be being done? It, well, nobody's because there would be no divine beings because it's a relationship with God the Father in this kind of loving relationship that gives rise to the divine power and knowledge, presence, and so forth. What you've set up is logically impossible. Well, hang on. I, I thought you said, why isn't it not uh, this, this loving relationship between any two divine beings? Are you now changing it and saying that it's between only any divine beings and the Father, whereas, so the Father is the most essential and he is ontologically different than everyone else? There's no logical necessity. I mean, I don't believe God exists of logical necessity. But there's another type of necessity. It is simply a fact that for all eternity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost have chosen to be in this relationship with the Father being recognized as the primary mover for that. Right. I'm saying hypothetically, though. Well, and I'm saying hypothetically doesn't make any sense because the way things actually are, there would be no way that that could occur. If that had not happened, if the three beings had not from all eternity chosen to love each other, it, in my view, it would be impossible to have divine beings because there wouldn't be the primacy of one um, for the other. So the bottom line is that the very way you set it up in the thought experiment would become logically impossible to that extent. I don't see how because... Logical consequence, not of, of not not of logical necessity to reign. I, I need to define different kinds of logical necessity again. But the fact is, is that the consequence of the thought experiment that you've set up is that there are no divine beings. Okay, and again, I'm not I'm not saying why though. Let's say just I know that you tried to invoke the eternity that they happen to be that way. Well, again, and you, I assume we can do hypotheticals just so we can see what would be necessary and what would not be necessary. Let's say God's name is Bob, just for sake of argument, or let's call him L. That's more respectful, I guess. But let's say rather than L starting this out, it just happened to be Le, the backwards of L. So since Le is now backwardsly, you know, eternally in this relationship, does it really matter who that being is as long as there was a being? I'm just saying this goes back to the very first chapter of the very first book where is God merely this title that any being could assume as long as they were that being, or is it necessary that it was that particular being? And I know I, with having a side saying, well, it just happens to be this. Well, okay, that's fine. But you can use your imagination that it happened to not be that. That's not hard to imagine. So I'm just trying to preempt the arguments that, you know, I would see people making against the same, like, well, your God is not there's nothing special about him. It could have been any of us divine beings that entered this relationship. And that's why I say if God left, 
I don't see why the divinity would cease because we still all have this beautiful loving relationship because you said, you know, we could leave that relationship and then that's fine. The entity known as God would still exist because they're in this emergent divine relationship and any divine beings have this emergent power because of it. As a matter of factual necessity, as a matter of historical necessity, it can't be otherwise. It is this being and no other. Is it logically possible that it be otherwise? Yes, it's logically possible that it be otherwise. But then you've got to realize that mermaids are logically possible, so you're not gaining a whole lot. I don't know if they are, but okay. The thought experiment that you've set up, it set up is simply contrafactual. I don't believe that there's a lot that's logical and logically necessary. And this is one of those things that isn't logically necessary. Could there have been another being? Could we call him another name? Could we call him Allah? Or could we call him Zarathustra? Could we call him by different names? The answer is, of course, <laughs> we could. I'm not saying just a name. I'm saying an actual different being. Um, and I'm saying as, as a matter of temporal necessity, it, it can't be. But you see what I'm getting at? I'm not trying to say the past didn't occur as the past occurred. I'm just trying to say it could have occurred differently. And I'm just trying to see if there's something unique about this one particular being that we call God, or is it just because he's the one that offered relationship? There is something unique about this being. He had the capacity. He's, he is the most intelligent of them all. He's the one who had the capacity from all eternity to draw all others to him. This particular being just happened to be the most knowledgeable and the most persuasive and the most loving, given the way things actually work. So go back to the book of Abraham. You have a gradient of intelligences, but the Lord God is the most intelligent of them all. And so from all eternity, it's this being. And it, I'm saying it's a matter of factual necessity. Is it logically possible it would be different? Yes. But there is something unique and remarkable about the Father that's not true of any other being. If you believe in individual essences and or in a Kripkean sense of the type of divine rigid designator, and a rigid designator is a logical term, then yes, of logical necessity, it is this particular being because of logical necessity, I couldn't be anyone else because I am who I am. There are specific properties that I have that nobody else has, and if anybody else had those properties, they would just be me. And so if anybody else had the property of being in this relationship, of being the most intelligent, the most loving from all eternity, then they just would be the being L, the Father. And so what you're saying, at least in those terms, is logically impossible. That's why I'm saying there's a different nature of logical necessity at issue. Given the way things actually are, this then becomes a logical necessity in terms of identity. And it couldn't be anyone else. Is the Father uniquely? And is the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost uniquely? Okay, and then just one last follow-up question, and this might not sound respectful, but I'm just trying to understand it in these terms. So, the reason that God is God and I am not God seems to be dumb luck, kind of, because he just happened to be the most intelligent being. He just happened to be in this relationship. It just seems like he just got lucky. However, I mean, he didn't start to, so it's kind of a weird eternal concept, but like, all you're saying that if it's not explainable by logical necessity, it's a matter of dumb luck. I don't think in those terms. That doesn't follow. Well, I'm just saying because you said he just happened to be. I'm asking you to explain that. He just happened to be. So why, why is it morally praiseworthy? It, or how is that different from God, let's say, because you have the argument like, well, some people believe God is necessarily good. And that's not morally praiseworthy because if you can't not be good, then it's not praiseworthy. So is, is God praiseworthy because he accomplished something morally 
great or he just happens to be God because that's just the way it is? Both. He is the greatest love that there is. And I'll always follow the greatest love wherever it leads. And it's definitive of who he is. The nature of his wisdom and love are such that it's just a reflection of the kind of person that he is. Now, we're getting into personal qualities here. We're getting into the kind of thing where we're talking about individuals. And so it's the kind of necessity that's appropriate for individual identity, not the kind of necessity if you want to get into a thought world. Is it logically possible that I never existed? The answer is yes. Is it logically possible that there's another world where there's another person who has every property that I have, but they had different parents? And the answer is, well, part of what makes me me is my DNA and the relationships in which I exist. And so if a person were in a different world and they didn't have that DNA and they didn't have my relationships, they wouldn't be me in that sense. There would be a distinction in identity. Say, however, that somehow by a fluke they had my exact identity and all of the capacities that I have, but if they had different experiences and different relationships, they would still be defined as a different person in the way that I define identity. But you're getting into very, very deep waters here in terms of individual personal identity and necessities that apply to it. And I couldn't teach a class on this in three semesters because there would be so much to teach about. And then like past eternities is kind of a big, huge topic that has a bunch of mathematical things to understand too. So that's fine. Getting too big there, but that's fine. I just wanted to talk about it just because it's in relation to our divinity as well, and why we are and what we are. Anyway, one other thing to ask you then, Dad, is, and I guess you've kind of covered it, but what's the difference between this godhood with the one will being realized and, let's say, I don't know if you've seen Star Trek The Next Generation, but they have this enemy race called the Borg, which are basically this, uh, do you know what that is? like? I'm geeky enough to know exactly what the Borg is and how really says Dark Trek is. Okay. So they, they all share this one mind and they're all controlled by one will. None of them have their own wills and they're all, you know, this mindless things that obey the will of the Queen Bee, basically. Sure. It's like the hive mind in Orson Scott Card's Ender novels, sure. Yes. But that's oh, generally painted as a bad thing, so how is this different? You know, how do we paint this in a, in a good light? to have only one will realized where, you know, again, Mormons started in America and Americans really like to have individuality emphasized. So Because we're not automatons. I mean, in those, the others are totally dependent in the sense that they're automatons and can't have their own free will. We've been given our own free will and our ability to choose. I mean, we don't have this hive mind because we don't have the same capacities that the divine persons have to love. That's what we're here to learn. We'd say, well, but what about once we join our mind to theirs? We still maintain our free will. At any time, we could say, you know what? I'm willing to be stupid and choose against the greatest value that I know. We do it all the time as human beings, by the way. And in fact, I would make the argument that immoral choices just are choosing against what clearly is in our best interest and against the best good. But we always maintain our free will, and we're not automatons, and that's what we value. The reason that we see that as something that isn't desirable is that if we're mere automatons, we're not really individuals, we don't really have freedom. We therefore don't have the kind of moral qualities and the kind of freely chosen love that is the crowning apex of this view. I mean, what we really value is precisely that free choice. To sum up this chapter, what do you want people to take away from this part? We've gone over, ultimately, you know, we've gone over the arguments, now we've arrived at Mormon deification. 
We've talked about the problems. I think we've overcome them, at least against the arguments that could be presented from some other faith traditions. Basically, it's like, well, you have creation ex nihilo, we don't. And if you don't believe that, then, you know, we can't really talk further about this. It's not merely we can't talk further. I think what we've demonstrated is precisely the notion of creation ex nihilo is incoherent in the sense that the other very essential beliefs that are maintained by Christians and Jews and even by Muslims are inconsistent with the notion of creation ex nihilo. And in particular in Christianity, the very essential notions of Christology, of human free will, of human deification, of salvation, and so forth, are all impossible if one accepts this notion of creation out of nothing. I want people to take away from it an appreciation for the genius of Joseph Smith's revelations that simply cut through all of this and redefine the Christian relationship in a way that makes sense of all of those things. I think that the Christology that emerges in Joseph Smith's thought is, in fact, the most coherent and inspiring that is possible and precisely has the strength, I think, of making the most sense and having the most explanatory power with respect to scriptures. I think the same with respect to the view of persons and free will, and in particular the notions of deification. Above all, what I want people to take away is this crowning good, this overarching, magnificent relationship that is being offered to us, and the value that it has as the most valuable and important thing that we can possibly even imagine. When I use the word thing, I'm misspeaking. I'm talking about an interpersonal relationship into which we've been invited that is the fulfillment of everything that we care most about. And it is this that forms the very center, the very core of everything that Christ taught, the kind of love that he's teaching us, why he's teaching us about love, and most importantly, what it really means to be a Christian, to have the divine life living within us, to be growing in the light from one degree to another, from one grace to another grace, um, until we can really reflect the love of Christ and the light of Christ in our countenances, and to be Christians because Christ has taken up abode within us. His life lives within us. His light shines from us. His deeds flow from us. The love that he has for others is expressed in our lives, toward others, in an action and an active and interactive way where we're totally involved in serving others. I think this is not only inspiring, I think it is the most inspiring view possible. There is nothing that is more worthy of our commitment and devotion than the loving relationship that is being offered to us and Joseph Smith's commitment to create a society, Zion, which was a reflection of this divine love and this divine relationship. And so everything he did focused on bringing us into this relationship and making it possible for us to learn the kind of love that is necessary to be in this kind of relationship. There's nothing that is more confirming, fulfilling, Nothing that realizes our nature and humanity more than being in these kinds of interpersonally loving relationships. Christianity is all about love. It is all about this kind of focus on what the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost have offered us out of their love. And it ought to show up in our lives. It really doesn't exist until it's reflected in the lives when we show up for others, when we do for others, in the caring, the listening, 
And the sheer just simple way of being where people know that they're being affirmed in a way that is so fulfilling that all doubt disappears and interpersonal trust reappears. And where we know that we're safe, we know that we've been saved, and we rest in the magnificence of the glory of God. And that's where this has got to go. So, you know, all of this is for the glory of God. All of this is for inspiring others to see this vision, which I think is, as I said, the most worthy vision that one can have. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.